Good morning uh, again. Um, thank you guys for leading us uh, in worship. Uh, more of that to come. Uh, so if you are just joining us or if you uh, have been kind of skipping in and out and uh, missing several weeks, um, how dare you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, we, are, we are in a series. We're actually wrapping up a series today um, in the Ten Commandments. Um, but it, it's, it's uh, not just walking through the Ten Commandments. We're actually walking through the Ten Commandments uh, by way of Jesus. We are actually looking at the Ten Commandments and then asking, what is at the heart of these commandments? What is at the heart of the, uh, these commandments? Uh, and how could we understand the real power to obey these commandments by looking at an encounter with Jesus or a story with Jesus? That, that Jesus actually teaches about the Ten Commandments too and actually through his, through his gospel gives us the ability to actually obey them. So we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to look at a story with Jesus and bleed those two things together and see how could we, through the power of of Christ's mercy to us, actually begin to lean into the commandments and obey them and live out uh, his intention for us. So we're going to read a passage from Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments come from, and this wraps up our series on the Ten Commandments. We're going to close with two final commandments, and then we're going to look at a story from Matthew chapter 20. So, this will be on the screen for you uh, if you don't have your Bible or on your phone. Starting in Exodus 20, chapter, 15, or chapter 20, verse 15, says, you shall not steal. Simple enough, don't do it. Uh, and then Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the, the last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then skipping ahead to Matthew chapter 20 in the New Testament, this is Jesus speaking. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, um, we come to your word and, um, and it, it is... It is powerful to have a story and even have commandments that cut to the heart, uh, and so would you have us, would you guide us gently to not be afraid of the cutting, uh, knowing that whatever uh, you cut open, you also heal. 
And so um, we can trust the wounds from a friend, our friend Jesus, who may need to expose some things in us this morning about our hearts, knowing um, that you always long to set us more free. So come to us now, Jesus. We, we long, uh, entering this week of Thanksgiving, we, we long um, for a fresh encounter with you that our hearts would be more grateful. We pray for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's just briefly look at the commandments. Uh, you shall not steal and you shall not covet, or you shall not be envious. That's a uh, synonym uh, for coveting is envious. Um, so what's at the heart of these two commandments? You shall not steal and you shall not be envious or you shall not covet. What's at the heart of these commandments? And how are they interrelated? Well, you can't take someone's stuff, you can't steal from them, you can't take from them until you first decided they have something that you need or want, right? I have to decide that I want what you have if I'm gonna take that thing from you. I can't steal from you without first being envious of you. I can't take without being envious. And so that's the, that's, the, that's the negative form of the covenant. Don't do these things. Don't take and don't even be so envious that would, that would cause you to take. But the opposite of these commandments is what we've looked at each week. Uh, the opposite of these commandments is, is, is also what the Lord causes people to. It's not just don't steal and don't be envious. And as long as you get close to that line, but you never really cross into the threshold of being envious, you're good. No, no, it's actually the opposite is what we're actually called into. Meaning, the opposite of being envious is what would it look like for God's people to be radically generous? Instead of... Uh, thinking about what do other people have that I want to take from them, what would it look like for God's people to think, what do other people not have that I need to give to them? And so the, the heart of this commandment is to actually lead God's people to being radically generous people, not takers and stealers, not envious coveters, but have a radical generosity and a radical commitment to other people's flourishing instead of my own. So that's the heart of the commandment, but before we jump to the New Testament story, I wanna, I wanna set the stage for this conversation. Because the sin of envy, the sin um, of coveting, is a tricky one. And it's not tricky because it's unclear. <laughs> it's, not, it's not vague. It's tricky because it's a submarine. And here's what I mean. No one thinks they're committing the sin of envy. It's rare, I meet with a lot of people, it's rare that I sit down with people and they confess and they, they, they want to talk about what they're struggling with and they say things like, I'm just struggling with rage or lust or depression or these things that, that weigh heavy on people. I don't think I've ever met with anybody and the first thing they say when they sit down is, um, man, I'm just really wrestling with my envy. My envy is eating me up. It's the sin that stays hidden. But it's not ironic that this sin is at the end of the Ten Commandments. I think, uh, and many scholars think, that this, this, this commandment is placed at the end of the Ten Commandments because it is somewhat of a catch-all commandment. Meaning, you can read through the other nine commandments and maybe think you're doing just fine until you get to the sin of don't envy, don't covet, and realize if you truly understand what it's calling you out of, if you truly understand what it's prohibiting, you would realize you're doing this all the time, and so am I. In fact, Paul in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 7, Paul's talking about um, his own self-righteousness and his own sin life, and he says, I thought I was doing great in righteousness until I heard about you shall not covet, you shall not envy. And then when I understood that commandment, I realized I was envying all the time. Francis Schaeffer 
biblical scholar of the last generation or so, said, this commandment is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. When he is confronted with this commandment, he is brought to his knees. Ecclesiastes chapter four says that, I saw that all toil and all skill in work came out of a man's envy of his neighbor. Meaning, what the author of Ecclesiastes just said is that the reason why you get up in the morning is because of envy. Almost everything you do is because of envy, according to the Bible. See, we're plagued by this constant state of comparison, this constant state of thinking that other people have better lives than we do, and then living in the toxicity of believing, if I just had what they had, then my life would be better. See, envy is not just wanting something to enjoy it. It's not wrong to enjoy things. It's not wrong to want things. Envy is when I have taken that thing that I want or things that I want or the life that I want and I've moved it to the center of my heart and I believe if I don't have that thing, then my life is incomplete. If I don't have that part of my life, then I will not be content. So there's a difference between wanting something because I want it and wanting something because I think having it will give me the life that I desire. And this sin of envy is only heightened and put on steroids and intensified in a city like Nashville, where there's so much beauty and so much um, joy and so much money and so much uh, celebrity and so much things to be envious of in this town. And everyone is practicing this sin that comes from the comparison with other people that makes me think you have a better life than I have, which means I can be envious of anything. I can be envious of your wife. I can be envious of your kids. I can be envious of your address. I can be envious of your body shape. I can be envious of your, of your bank account. I can be envious of your gifts. I can be envious of your thinking that you have a, a better life than me in any way or shape or form than that takes. I can want your confidence, I can want your humor, I can want your personality, I can want your fame, I can want your job. I believe that if I had things that you had, my life would be better than it is right now. But we're terrified of admitting how often we do this. And, and, and part of this even plays into Envy's uh, game. Because Envy is a great masquerader. Envy is so subtle and clever. We play into, the, we play into Envy's hands because, because it's terrifying to admit how envious I really am of other people's lives. Because part of what I want to believe about myself and I want you to believe about me is that I actually secretly want you to be envious of me. I want you to think that I have a way better life than you do. That's why we all have Instagram. It's why, I, it's why we post things online, because I want you to think that I have a better life than you do, so that you would be envious of me. And so to admit that I'm envious means my life is not complete, means that I'm not as content as I've made you think I am, and so I can't actually admit that I'm envious, because that would destroy my goal of making you envious of me. This sin keeps, us, keeps itself hidden from us. And we play into its game. See, this, this, to admit that I'm envious of you would actually be to admit that I'm inferior to you. It would actually be to admit that you are superior to me. That I don't have what I want. You have what I want. 
And therefore, I have to admit that I'm lesser and inferior because I don't have what I want and I can't get what I want. So I'm somehow lesser or incomplete or don't have what I want and therefore I feel this, this shame and this weight of believing something's wrong with me or else I would have what I wanted. And the 10th commandment calls us away from this sin because it destroys not only our neighbors, it destroys our own soul. That's the sin of coveting, which is related to the sin of stealing. But this commandment against coveting and against envying sets us up for this New Testament story in Matthew chapter 20. Let me give you a little setup for the Matthew chapter 20 story, the context in which Jesus tells this parable. So Jesus is still in the interaction. He has just had the interaction with what is known as the rich young ruler. We studied it several months ago. The rich young ruler is this rich young ruler, and he is called by Jesus to sell everything he has and give it away and come follow Jesus, and he won't do it. He walks away. And when he walks away, all the disciples see this rich young ruler walk away, and they go, well, who can enter the kingdom of God then? This is too hard for us to do. How could anybody enter if that guy can't set down what he loves and walk and follow you, Jesus? How could, he, how could anybody ever enter the kingdom of God? And then Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter steps up. Don't we love Peter? Peter wants to make a name for himself. And he's trying to prove his devotion to Jesus and what he thinks he deserves and what he thinks he would earn something by Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything for you. We're not like that rich young ruler. We, did, we, didn't, we didn't have a hard time walking away. We walked away from everything for you. So what are we going to get? Like he walked away. We didn't. And after Peter says that line, We've left everything for you. Jesus tells this parable. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a vineyard. It's like a vineyard owner. And this vineyard owner, this landowner, goes out at dawn, which is very normal, uh, to hire workers for the day. He goes out to hire these day laborers. He hires at 6 a.m. these day laborers, and he's going to pay them, he says, a day's wages, which is fair, a denarius. He says, hey, come work in my vineyard. They go, great, that sounds awesome. I would love some work. I would love to eat tonight. So he says, come work in my vineyard. And then at 9 o'clock, he goes back out into the, into the marketplace, and he finds more workers for his vineyard. And then at 12 o'clock, and then at 3 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock, he does the same thing. Come work in my vineyard. Come work in my vineyard. And then at the end of the day, he has his, his manager, his foreman, go and pay the workers that work for him. And the vineyard owner pays the one-hour workers, the people that started at 5 o'clock, he pays them a denarius, a full day's wage. And then he pays the 12-hour workers also a full day's wage. And the 12-hour workers, the ones who had worked all day and worked in the heat, they said, they had received a fair day's wages for their labor. But they respond like this. Upon receiving their payment, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They're angry. And there's a little interaction, and Jesus closes the interaction of this parable with the master of the vineyard, with the workers, and he says, are you envious because I am generous? Envy is born at the moment of the payment. Here's what I mean by that. At the beginning of the day, the workers who worked all day thought this was a great deal. They agreed to it. They said, man, we would love to come work for a denarius. At the end of the day, when they got what they were due, what they agreed to work for, and then other people got what didn't seem fair or seemed unjust, when they got a full day's wages, that's where envy 
That's where rage, that's where their grumbling was born out of. The only thing that changes in the story for the 12-hour workers is what happened to other people. Nothing changed with what was happening to them. The only thing that changed is how other people were treated in the story. And at that moment, they become envious. Comparison is what made them envious. These men had agreed legally to work in this vineyard all day, and they would be paid a denarius. And that's what they did, and that's what they were paid. So the master of the vineyard has not been unfair or unjust or even unkind. The fact that he chose to be generous with other people is what gives these 12-hour laborers their fury. Comparison fuels their envy and their rage. So, what are, the, what are the roots of the tree of envy, and how do we see it playing out in this story? And isn't it so interesting that Jesus makes this whole parable about envy? You might think, like, no, this is about, like, fair um, market value of labor. This is about minimum wage laws or, or something. No, this is about envy. And envy is born out of the comparison of how Jesus is treating other people. So what are the roots that cause the tree of envy to grow in us? Well, if you can imagine your life on this little patch of green grass, and you look out and see everyone else's patches of green grass that they're standing on, and you might imagine that the grass is greener where other people are. And you're standing out there and you're not, you're not even focused on your grass anymore. You're looking out there and you're going, that grass looks greener, that grass looks prettier, that grass looks better, like more expensive to plant the seeds for. I wish I was standing on that grass that those people are living on. I want what they have. When we look out and see other people's greener grasses, we end up longing for their grass, the plot of grass that they're on, to be our grass. But here's what's interesting. I can't want your life. I can't want the grass that you live on. I can't, not, I can't be envious of what your life looks like if I'm first not very discontent with what my patch of grass looks like. I have to hate what is going on in my life. I have to be discontent with how my life is going before I will believe that your life is better than mine. I have to admit in my envy that the other side of the envy coin is discontentment with what I have. I can't long for something you have without first really hating and despising what I have. And if I don't like what I have, please follow this train of thought, if I don't like what I have, and then I turn my fist to the skies in rage of hating what I have, I have to deal with the God who gave me what I have. And so at the end of the day, envy is really about hating the God that gave me what I have. Envy is founded on the belief that something is rightfully mine and I deserve something that was due to me and I have the right to it. I deserve that lifestyle. I deserve that bank account. I deserve that family. I deserve that house. I deserve those gifts. I deserve that personality. And if I believe I deserve it, that I'm mad at the one who didn't give me what I think I deserve. Comes out in the workers at the end of the story. It's on display for us in these 12-hour laborers. They literally are saying to the landowner, to the master of the vineyard, you don't have a right to do this. To which the master replies, oh, I'm sorry. Do I have a right to do what I want to do with my money? They demand to be paid more. We deserve more. And if you're not giving us more, then we're mad at you. 
So if God is who he says he is, and I'm standing in my own present tense reality, and my present tense reality isn't good enough for me, especially when I compare my present tense reality with you, then what I'm really believing in that moment is that God is not a very good God to me. He has not been good to me. If he had been good to me the way that I define how he would have been good to me, then my life wouldn't be discontent. Why can my life not go the way that I want it to go? And why can the storyline of my life not play out the way that I thought that it should? Why won't God just let me run my life? (laughs) See, at the bottom of envy is the belief that I should be God. They grumble at the master who paid other people the same that he paid them. But they're mad at the master. They're mad at the landowner, the vineyard owner, because they think they would have done a better job being a landowner. (laughs) And so, if I'm discontent with where I'm at, with my present tense, then I'm really mad at the God who is over my present tense. Or as one scholar put it, God gets the ultimate blame for what the envier perceives to be the unjust distribution of excellency. Meaning, anytime we are discontent, we're mad at God that he didn't distribute the goods fairly. Which is why the vineyard's owner at the end, the vineyard owner's question at the end of the parable is so haunting. This, 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 is, this is like cut to the heart when Jesus makes this turn at the very end. He says, are you envious because I'm generous? See, because Jesus knows our envy is never, 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 never about the thing that we think we want. It's not about that. Our envy is not about the house we want. Our envy is not about the life we want. Our envy is not about the bank account we want. Our envy is not about the spouse we want. Our envy is about our dealings with God's generosity. Are you envious because I'm generous? Envy is the belief that we should be in charge and God's generosity offends us because it means that he is in charge. And so even if you got the house or the spouse or the bank account or the gifts or the money or whatever, envy would still be there because envy is rooted in pride. The moment I want your life, I am hating the God that gave me mine. That's what envy is about. Are you envious because I am generous? And so while this parable exposes our envy and the roots of our envy, if you'll lean in for just a minute, this is what makes Jesus a master teacher. This parable also provides the remedy for our envy. See, because at the root of envy is the, is the core belief that God is not good or he certainly has not been good to me. But the remedy for envy would be an encounter, a fresh encounter with the lavish goodness of our God to us. Or in other words, you cannot love grace and be envious. Those two things cannot exist together. You cannot love the goodness, graciousness of God and be envious of other people's things. Because if we had a fresh affection, if we had a deep affection, a deep gratitude, a deep humility for the life and the things and and the way that God has treated us, it would cut the root of our envy tree out. And maybe no better parable in the entire New Testament displays for us the gracious goodness of God than this parable about the vineyard owner. And I wanna wanna spend the last few minutes talking about the beauty of what, what we see here. Because this parable is about exposing the envy in the listener. It's also about showing us 
the heart of the vineyard owner. See, in the story, the vineyard owner goes out to find laborers at six, at noon, at three. I'm sorry, at six, which was dawn, at nine in the morning, at noon, at three, and at five. Five times during the day, this vineyard owner goes out. Now, a few things about that are striking. One, vineyard owners don't go out. See, we find out later in the story that this vineyard owner actually has a foreman. He, said, he calls the foreman the manager to go pay the people. This was the foreman's job to go find laborers for the day, not the vineyard owner's job. So the very fact that the vineyard owner is the one that's going out, and uh, spoiler alert, Jesus is the vineyard owner. The fact that Jesus is the one that's going out, the fact that Jesus says, no, 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 I actually want to go to the people. I actually want to be the one to go out there because I care about them. It's the first alarming thing about this vineyard owner that shows us that he's a little bit different. But then it gets better. This vineyard owner goes out five times during the day. Okay, so he's a very successful vineyard owner because he's got a huge vineyard. And he's got a foreman managing his vineyard. And he's going out five times during the day. Let me, let me just <clears throat> break this down. No vineyard owner, no foreman would have been caught off guard at the amount of work that needed to be done in a given day. They would have known at dawn, they would have known the day before, at the, at the ending of yesterday's work day, how much work was going to be done the next day. So at dawn, that morning, he knows exactly how many laborers he needs. But he keeps going out to find more workers. <clears throat> because this vineyard owner is so gracious, so extravagant, he wants more workers. Not so that, not so that he can get more work done. Those five o'clock hires mean nothing to him, him in his bottom line. They're not helping him. They're not getting anything done for him. The only reason why this vineyard owner is going out is so that he can bring more people in. It's almost as if this vineyard owner wants these people not based on what they can do for him. He just wants these people. He's so lavish that he wants to pour out blessings on people, that he keeps going to find more workers. And then, and then, it gets to the end of the day, and it comes time for payment. And when it comes time to pay those one-hour workers, the people that literally deserve next to nothing, and by the way, a denarius could be broken up into twelfths. There was a twelfth of a denarius payment. He could have paid those workers for one hour. He gives them the whole day's wages. He decides to pay them far and above what was due to them or what they had earned. He decided not only to bring in more than anybody would have ever thought needed, he decided to dote on those that he brought in and be generous with them even though they didn't deserve it. And Jesus says, that's what my kingdom's like. That's what it's like. That's what I'm like. That Jesus, the owner of the vineyard, is far more gracious than you know. And I don't care what you believe about him. He is far more gracious than you know. He doesn't make payments to you based on what you've done or haven't done. He doesn't disseminate grace to you based on how you've been doing or feeling. He doesn't disseminate grace to you based on your record this week. The grace of Jesus, get this, depends on Jesus. The grace of Jesus depends on what he's decided to do with what he's going to do. His stance towards you depends on how he feels about you, not on how you feel about him. This promise and this guarantee is actually buried in some other elements of the story as well. 
In verse 15, I love this line from Jesus, and I hate it, but I love it right now. <clears throat> verse 15, when he's in this quarrel with the, with the workers, he says, don't, don't I have the right to do with my money what I want to do with my money? Don't I have the right? That word, the right, that Greek word in the original language of the New Testament <clears throat> means, don't I have the authority? Don't I have the permission to do with my things what I want to do with my things? Does Jesus have the right to do what he wants to do? Does Jesus have the authority to do what he wants to do with his created being and his created world? And if he does, how can we know that he will do that? How can we know that he will disseminate those things with justice and with fairness? Jesus here claims he has the right to do what he wants to do, which should maybe scare us a little bit. Because in a culture that is so toxically obsessed with our rights, no matter where you fall politically, pushing all of that aside, Jesus is truly the only being in the history of ever to actually have the right to do whatever he wants to do. He made it all. He can do what he wants to do. The potter can do whatever he wants to do with the clay. He made the clay. So if he has the right, if he has the authority, if he has the dominion to do whatever he pleases, What's he going to do with us? Well, back towards the beginning of the story, when that same landowner is going out to find laborers, he tells the second round of workers. It says he said to them in verse four, he said to them, "You go out to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you." So this is a scary thing because what Jesus just said is, "Whatever is righteous in my eyes, I have the right to do whatever I want to do, and whatever is right in my eyes, I will do to you." I have the authority to make my own decisions. It's my money. It's my grace. It's my mercy. And whatever I want to do with it, I will do with it. And you can trust me, workers. That's what he's saying. I'll do whatever's right towards you. So Jesus has the authority and the rights to do as he wishes. And yet he promises the laborers that he will do what is right and righteous by them. And if you actually believe that for a moment, I mean, just before we go on, that should maybe terrify you more. Because Jesus just said, I have the right to do whatever I want to do with my justice and my wrath and my mercy and my grace. I have the right to do it because I made the stinking clay. And I'm going to do whatever you deserve. I'm going to do what is just by you. So the one who has the authority is going to treat us justly. That should scare the spit out of us unless Jesus is far more gracious than you know. Because at the end, how the landowner, how the master decided what was right by the workers was that he pays them all the same. Not based on how long they had worked, but based on what he decided was right to pay them. And not once was he unjust in doing that. The authority of God with all of his free will and with all of his rights, that same authority and that same free will led him to be lavishly gracious with you, and that was righteous in his eyes. Romans chapter three says he has justified us by his grace freely, and this was to display the righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness that led him to be merciful with you. It's God's authority and his, and his rule, his sovereign control over everything, his ability to decide to do whatever he wants to do. Out of that place, out of his very free will, he decided it would be righteous for me to be gracious with you. 
In fact, it gets better than that. In his righteousness, he decided to give Jesus what you deserve so that you could get what Jesus deserves. That was righteous to him. And I promise you, if you see the mercy of God this way, if you see yourself this way, it will begin to uproot all the envy in your life. Because how in the world could you ever be angry at the God who has given you what you currently have if that same God gave you Jesus without hesitation? How in the world could we stand and be offended and throw our fingers to the sky? How could we be offended by his generosity when his generosity is what saved us? How could we rage at the generosity of the master when it's that very same master's generosity that sent Jesus to save us? You can't love grace and be envious. So if we have an envy problem, we need a major retuning of the heart towards grace that would show us what our God has done for us. Look, we, we are the 11 o'clock, 5 o'clock workers, and it's even worse than that. We're like the 5.59 hires, okay? We, didn't, we haven't even worked an hour. In fact, we, we maybe got hired at 5 o'clock, and we tried to burn some of the grapes to the ground. And yet the owner of the vineyard came to us and found us, and he's lavished his kindness on us that came, his kindness that came out of his own convictions of how he wanted to treat us. He decided he was going to be kind to us. And he's lavished himself on us with kindness and mercy and grace. Jesus only knows how to be committed to you. He only knows how to do what's best and right and kind to you. He will treat you no other way. Would you hear this and repent of your envy and of your coveting? That your Jesus has not dealt with you according to what your sins deserve. Would you put down your envy and your coveting that rages at the skies and is so angry with the God who gave you the life that you have with all the circumstances that you have. He's the very God who, who has given you that and I know that's terrifying to believe that you would actually put down your envy and your rage at that God because what that's inviting you to believe and I know this is crazy is you could actually be content right now. There's not something else out there that you're waiting on that would actually deliver you contentment, that actually, if you experience afresh the grace and the mercy of this master, you can actually be content right now with nothing changes, changing about your circumstances. Now, I'm not saying that changes in circumstances can be good and healing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about what may need to happen in your life. I'm talking about like this morning, before anything's changed, you can actually, because of the lavish grace of this master, you can actually be content right now. It's like Gandalf at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. He's looking at Bilbo who has this death grip on this ring. And Bilbo's raging at him, says, you will not take this ring from me. You will not do it. And Gandalf says, Bilbo, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to save you. Is, is it possible that like our, our demand to have a different life than we have is actually destroying us? And Jesus is coming, he's trying to like peel back our fingers and say, hey, would you, get, would you give me, would you repent over that envy and over that coveting? It's destroying you. To believe that God's grace is actually enough to make us satisfied. 
and that God's kindness to us is based on his commitment and his decision to do whatever he wants to do. And because he's decided to do it, he will not change his mind. And so if we just briefly look back at the commandment and what the commandment calls God's people to, you shall not steal and you shall not covet. The only people that can actually be truly generous are people that are truly content with what they have. And this coming season, uh, as we enter the holidays, I, I, would, I would plead with you to consider for your life, what does it mean to believe I'm content, I have what I need, I have everything I need, and out of my contentment to be generous. You'll be seeing some videos come to you. If you're on our email list, you can go to our website of ways that 12 South is, is looking to our city to try to be generous this holiday season. We've got some amazing ministry partners, Young Lives, uh, uh, or we're trying to adopt some teen moms uh, who need some help this Christmas season. Napier, the Napier neighborhood where our pastor Jonathan Nash is working is, is taking on a bunch of families and students to try to lavish on them. And Waverly Belmont Elementary right on the street, they need some food bags that are up in Matt Ackerman's office to feed their students over the holidays that's coming up. You can go grab them literally right now. That out of a place of contentment, would you consider lifting your eyes and saying, how would the Lord call me to be generous this season? That your master who has, who has given you far more than you deserve is not asking, he's not asking you to try to rob you. He's asking you to save you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, this, this is a scary thing. It's scary to admit uh, how much we want that we don't have. It's also scary to believe that what we, with what we have, we could actually be content because we have you. Would you lift our eyes uh, to the master of the vineyard and see his kindness, who, who goes out, who goes out repeatedly because you just, you just want more of us. You just bring us in because of your heart towards us. Would you, would you soften us with that? Give us a fresh experience of your grace this morning as we come to you in repentance. We love you, Jesus. We certainly know how much you love us in your name. Amen.